Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been discussing and enjoying Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Last time, we left off at the end of Act Two, Scene One, where Oberon, the king of the fairies, speaking to his henchman, Puck, who is a figure out of English folklore. He's actually the Puck, a type of trickster figure out of English folklore. His real name is Robin Goodfellow, but here in the play he's usually known by Puck as a proper name. Oberon speaks to Puck and erupts momentarily into one of the play's many passages of beautiful lyricism, like, as I said last week, like operatic arias, suddenly the action pauses for a moment, and we get these beautiful lyrical passages of imagery. Oberon says, I know a bank where the wild time blows where ox lips and the nodding violet grows, quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk-roses and with eglantine. There sleeps Titania, sometime of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight, and there the snake throws her enameled skin weed wide enough to wrap a fairy in. And with the juice of this, I'll streak her eyes and make her full of hateful fantasies. Take some of it, he says to Puck, and seek through this grove. A sweet Athenian lady is in love with a disdainful youth. Anoint his eyes. In other words, I am going to seek out Titania and squeeze onto her eyes this substance made from a magical flower, the love juice, which acts as Cupid's arrow in mythology acts. Cupid hits someone with an arrow, and they either fall madly in love or madly in hate with the next person that they open their eyes to see. Oberon will anoint Titania's eyes, Puck, you go, and anoint the eyes. There's an Athenian youth out there. Anoint his eyes. A good plan, except that neither of them knows that there happen to be uh, two Athenian youths out there. And, of course, Puck is going to anoint the wrong one. But that beautiful passage full of flowers and nature imagery, partly because the fairies represent the powers of nature out in the woods, in the green world, as Northrop Pry called it. And also we note the first of many references to the image of the snake. The snake has underworld associations and is, of course, sinister in a way. But also, as here, the snake throws her enameled skin. The snake renews itself, an image of death and rebirth by 
getting rid of its old skin and growing new. And that death and rebirth rhythm will be paralleled with and linked with the phases of the moon. And there are constant lunar references throughout the imagery as well. This is a remarkably complex play with a remarkably complex pattern of imagery that would be easy in performance to go right by, but it's there when we stop to consider it. Act two, scene two, all hell begins to break loose. And one way to summarize the plot of the middle of the play is all hell continues to break loose with mounting speed. Enter Titania, queen of the fairies, with her attendant fairies, and decides it's nap time, which they do a lot in the middle of the play. And granted, it's nighttime. It's time for beddy bye And people are getting sleepy. But it's also, of course, convenient for the plot so that people can have love juice squeezed on their eyes, etc. So Titania sleeps at the opening of the second scene of the second act. And sure enough, enter Oberon and squeezes the flower on Titania's eyelids and says, wake when some vile thing is near. And that vile thing will be the rude mechanical, in other words, working class human being, Bottom, who in addition, coming up soon, will have the head of an ass planted on him magically by Puck. Bottom himself would be a demeaning object for the Queen of Fairies to be in love with, but Bottom, on top of that, has the head of an ass. And this is a reference to or at least in resonance with a famous satire, The Golden Ass of Apuleius, featuring, however, a metamorphosis, a transformation, usually of a human being down the ladder of being towards either the animal or the plant world, and in doing so is parallel to another work of literature, Ovid's Metamorphoses, and the imagery from Ovid's Metamorphoses is almost constant in Midsummer Night's Dream. But metamorphosis, Oberon squeezes the flower on Titania's eyelids and enter Lysander and Hermia. There's lots of enter this couple, enter that couple, enter this person. They are all running madly blindly, confusedly, out in the woods in one direction or another, lost both literally and figuratively, confused. And so there are these constant appearances and disappearances, which set the rhythm of the play. Enter Lysander and Hermia, who, from the beginning of the play, have decided to elope and go out through the woods to the house of Lysander's aunt, who will, at least Lysander is confident, take them in. However, it's not going well. Lysander says to Hermia, fair love, you faint with wandering in the wood. And to speak truth, 
I have forgot our way. You are exhausted, and I confess, I've gotten lost. I've gotten us lost. And he goes on to say, we need to stop and rest, so they are going to sleep as well. And be it so, Lysander, Hermia says, but goes on to add, uh, nay, good Lysander, for, for my sake, my dear, lie further off yet. Uh, do not lie so near. There's a lot of stage business possible, indicated or hinted at in the text of Midsummer Night's Dream. And any particular production of the play can choose how much of it to develop or foreground or accentuate. And the more you do that, the play is capable of becoming absolutely a hilarious farce. Years ago, I saw a production in Stratford, Ontario, the Shakespeare Festival there, that was so funny, so much stage business, that the audience was in hysterics for much of the play. Though, of course, there are other things in here as well, the beautiful lyricism and some moments of real pain. <coughs> Puck comes in. Puck sees Hermia and Lysander lying sleeping apart, chastely and modestly from each other. That's the stage business. Oh, okay, we have to be good boys and girls, Hermia says to Lysander. Uh, don't I love you, dear, but don't lie so near. It's really not proper. We're going to be good about this. And so they do. And they're asleep. And it will be necessary later on for the purposes of the plot that they're far enough apart that the understanding is that they're out of sight of each other. Puck comes in, sees, ah, an Athenian youth must be the one Oberon told me about, and anoints Lysander, the wrong guy with the love juice. Enter Demetrius and Helena running. Why running? In the dark, in the woods? Because Helena is still pursuing Demetrius like a hound pursuing its prey, to use the image that she herself used back earlier in the play. She is fixated on Demetrius. He decided before the play even opened that he was going to be fixated on Hermia for rather flimsy reasons that we don't really believe. But at any rate, at the very opening of the play, he's already decided that he's blowing off Helena and wants Hermia and has the permission of her father uh, to do so, to pursue her. Helena, however, keeps running after him and weeping and wailing, and they both come to where Lysander is sleeping, and Lysander wakes up, sees Helena, and immediately, courtesy of the love juice, falls in love with her, and says, I will run through the fire for thy sweet sake, transparent Helena. Helena is totally confused, as well she might be, do not say so, Lysander, say not so. Hermia still loves you, be content. Lysander says, content with Hermia? No, uh, I want nothing to do with her. 
and goes on to say something significant. The will of man is by his reason swayed, and reason says you are the worthier made, which establishes a motif in the play. People are constantly, absolutely sure that they are being ruled by the power of reason and sense, when really they are being utterly irrational and being swayed either by love juice or by what love juice is a metaphor standing for, which is the irrationality of human emotion and desire. I am swayed by reason in the very moment in which he is definitely not being swayed by reason. He's drunk on love juice. Helena, understandably, this makes no sense at all. This is utterly out of character for Lysander. He is not known to be fickle in the way that Demetrius is. One wonders why Helena is fixated on Demetrius, since he doesn't seem to be very admirable in the way he treats women. But uh, nevertheless, she is. But Lysander has always been true to Hermia up to this very minute. And all she can assume, sensibly enough, is that a cruel joke is being played on her, that he's merely pretending to get a rise out of her like some cruel middle school type of prank. Wherefore was I to this keen mockery born? When at your hands did I deserve this scorn? It's just a way of making fun of me. And it's not, he's sincere so far as it goes. But nevertheless, she's, it's understandable that she would assume this. Meanwhile, on the other part of the stage, but out of sight, to uh, Helena and Lysander, Hermia wakes up, realizes that Lysander is gone. She's in the woods in the dark at night, a woman alone, and is understandably scared to death. Help me, Lysander, help me. And says, I've been having a nightmare while I slept. What a dream was here, a play of dreams. Methought a serpent ate my heart away. Another reference to the serpent. There are many in the play for a reason. And she's all upset. Open act three, the middle act, the hinge act, as I always call it, a long and involved act in which many things happen. Shakespeare juggles these characters like a juggler juggling balls, keeping them all up in the air at once. And that's not a bad metaphor for what goes on here. The skill with which he handles this, being careful at the same time not to confuse the audience, which would be easy to do. And we move to the rude mechanicals who are out in the forest in order to find some privacy to rehearse the play that they are going to put on at the wedding of Theseus and Hippolyta, which they will put on and which we will see hilariously at the end of the play. But they're still figuring it out here. They are putting on what Bottom refers to as this comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. 
as I will elaborate in a little while, this is a play of opposites and also of opposites that change places, interchange with each other, as indeed the lovers interchange in the dark. And usually the low-life plots of Shakespeare's comedy, Shakespeare's comedies typically are contrapuntal plots in which there are multiple subplots organized according to social classes. And we get this very visibly in Midsummer Night's Dream. We have the ruling class figures, Theseus and Hippolyta, the well-born but not ruling figures of the lovers and their family. And then we have the lower class, working class characters, the rude mechanicals, who are out here, nevertheless invited to participate in the wedding later. And they're going to put on a play which they have found. And it's going to be the comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe, Bottom says, because Bottom does not know being uneducated, and it's not politically correct that Shakespearean comedy almost invariably makes fun of the ignorance and simplicity of lower class characters. Though, as we will see, it's not as simple as that. Late in the play, it will be Bottom who suddenly shines in this play. Shakespeare yes, plays up to the social snobbery of his time, but also recognizes it's a little more complicated than that. And Bottom has something to him, which in fact his supposed superiors do not, as we'll see. At any rate, he does get confused frequently. And as with Shakespeare's other lower class characters, both here and elsewhere in his comedies, a lot of their humor consists of, because they are not very educated, mistaking words, mangling the English language, and particularly mistaking one word for another. And here, one term for its exact opposite, another play of opposites in a play about opposites, comedy and tragedy. This comedy, well, Pyramus and Thisbe is a story, here we go again, out of Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is clearly being echoed by Romeo and Juliet. And speaking of opposites, as I said last week, Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream, a tragedy and a comedy are in fact companion plays with clearly similar imagery and clear preoccupations. And the plot of Romeo and Juliet is a duplicate of the plot of Ovid's story of Pyramus and Thisbe, star-crossed lovers who die because their family opposes their love. They meet surreptitiously. They think each other is dead and kill themselves unnecessarily and their blood stains the white mulberry red. So we get the eros colors of white and red, the Valentine's erotic colors. And here, Bottom calls it the comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. And this mistaking, it is a mistake, 
But there's more to it than that, as we shall see, because all the opposites in the play have a tendency to turn into each other or to overturn each other and substitute for each other. At any rate, the rude mechanicals are having a problem, more making fun of the uneducated and the naive. Much of the comedy also, in addition to mangling language, consists of a literal-mindedness of these laboring class people about the play. They are deathly afraid that the audience will do what they might have a tendency to do, and that is to mistake fiction for reality. They're afraid they're going to have to have a lion in the play. They're afraid that a guy in a lion costume is going to scare the ladies in the audience to death, that they're not going to know the difference between a real lion and a guy made up like a lion. And then more literalism. Okay, there's moon shining in the plot. The two lovers meet by moonlight, so we're going to have to have somebody walk in dressed up as and playing the moon. Then they meet and talk through a chink in a wall, a wall that separates them and their houses. So we're going to have to have a guy who plays a wall with a chink in it. And indeed, they will, coming up. Here they're planning it, but they're also starting to rehearse some of the dialogue. And as one of the actors reads the line as true as truest horse that yet would never tire, enter bottom, on cue, but as pyramus, but with an ass's head. And it's interesting that Shakespeare does not explain this, either in the text or to his audience, at this point. We kind of can assume, and it will turn out to be correct in the very next scene, that this is some mischief of Pucks, who loves to go around finding ways to be mischievous. And sure enough, in Act 3, Scene 2, uh, since we have now entered into the third act, Oberon and Puck touch base with each other, and Puck does confess that an ass's knoll I fixed on his head and so forth, but it's not explained at first. Suddenly, uh, in the previous scene, Bottom bursts onto the stage with the head of an ass, no explanation. The rude mechanicals are, of course, terrified and go flying in all directions into the dark. Puck is delighted. Uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that he loves. Peter Quince, who is the director and organizer of this play, exclaims to Bottom, Bless thee, thou art translated. And you might get a footnote. Translated means transformed, but in a more scholarly edition, you might get a footnote pointing out what critics sometimes do, that translatio in Latin is the Greek is the Latin equivalent of the Greek metaphorine. Uh, in other words, metaphor. We have a play of opposites, opposites that somehow or other are unified even though they also 
oscillate and turn into each other. One thing, another thing, opposites and yet somehow identical and interchanging. The verbal equivalent of that structure is a metaphor. A metaphor verbally says A is B, this is that. Usually, we take metaphors as we say figuratively, that is not literally. The rude mechanicals, remember, take everything literally, and that's a mark of naivete, we educated people think. Nonetheless, somehow here, opposites are metaphorically identified, and again, we have to wait to see where all this goes, how all this develops. At any rate, just as we figured would happen, sure enough, Bottom is standing there with the head of an ass. He is singing a song. Everybody ran away, so I'm going to amuse myself by singing, which gives an excuse for a song and a play with many songs in it. And it's a song about birds singing whose note full many a man doth mark, and dares not answer nay. And the word nay on stage, more stage business, in other words, would turn into the brain of an ass. Clearly, you know, the actors and director in real life of a production of Midsummer Night's Dream have to be attentive to the text and use the opportunities for some of these jokes and pieces of business that are going on. At any rate, Titania wakes up, sees Bottom with the head of an ass, decides it's the most beautiful thing she's ever seen in her life and falls madly in love with him. On the first view to say, to swear, I love thee, she says. Bottom, trying to be tactful, perhaps, says, Methinks, mistress, you should have little reason for that. It's a modest man. And yet, to say the truth, reason and love keep little company together nowadays. There we go. You know, the, the lovers are convinced they're absolutely being according to reason when they're being utterly irrational and actually making complete fools of themselves. Bottom understands that things are very unreasonable these days. He has actually more insight into it than the others do. At any rate, Titania is totally infatuated, tells her fairies to make a big fuss over him, and we move on to Act 3, Scene 2. Oberon meets up with Puck again. They check notes. How now, mad spirit, Oberon says to Puck, what night rule now about this haunted grove? Night rule. That phrase leaps out as really a, a useful term for the phenomenon that is going on out in the woods. Night rule, not the rule of day. And I keep saying this is a play of opposites. And perhaps here we can pause a moment to lay out some of them because we've seen plenty enough of it that we can lay out a whole set of them. When I teach this play in a classroom and have a board I can make a chart on, 
I write them on the board and in an organized way, because actually, despite the seeming chaos, there is an underlying order. There are sets of opposites, but of those opposites, in every case, one opposite is privileged over the other. Socially approved of, dominant over, or people feel should be dominant over, and the other one should be subordinated. The way I write this to make a visual pattern of it is in a diagram in which one opposite is literally above the other, separated by a bar as if it were a mathematical fraction with one number above and one below. And there are the opposites in ascendant and then there are the opposites down below, one over the other. For example, and you could lengthen this out until you run out of board in the classroom. Uh, it goes on almost indefinitely, but let me just lay out a number of them and you'll get the idea. We move in the play from Athens, the court of Athens, out into the enchanted green world, Northrop Fry's phrase for the forest or woods in which a whole group of comedies move into. We move from day into the world of night and night rule. We move from a realm of waking to a realm associated in many ways with dream. Not only are the characters constantly falling asleep and sometimes having a dream, but the whole thing is dreamlike. The shifting of identities without explanation, the sense of being caught in a dream, in a nightmare. In fact, the poor characters, we laugh, but the poor characters are bewildered and sometimes terrified. We move from reason over what reason is supposed to rule over its opposite, which is desire, erotic, but also the other Freudian drive, in addition to the erotic pleasure principle, the aggressive drive, especially in the men who are always wanting to fight each other out here. We move from order to chaos, from human down the chain of being to what's underneath metamorphosis into an animal form, masculine over feminine with, yes, all attendant double entendre jokes of man on top, as it should be, some people think. We move from the reality principle, speaking of Freud, what he would call the reality principle, to a realm of imagination, a word that has not occurred yet in the play, but which will occur very famously towards the end of it. And we move from the civilized world of Athens out into nature associated with the fairies from Celtic mythology who are rulers of or embodiments of both of the powers of nature all of these sets of opposites with one privileged over the other. And I write these, as I say, as a chart on the board, but if you read across, all the lower elements clearly are associated with one another. 
and are in some ways aspects of one another. And the same is true of all the top ones. On the bottom of the chart, we have the green world, night, dream, desire, chaos, animal form, the feminine, the imagination, and the powers of nature, all akin, part of a complex. And on the top, we have Athens, the day, waking, reason, order, humanity versus the animal world, masculine, the reality principle, and civilization. Again, all ways of speaking about the same thing. What's the point of all this? We're going to have to decide only when we get to the end. But already we can see that this play, which does its best to create sheer chaos in the foreground, in the back is constructing an elaborate design. And then that's not the end of it because those upper, lower, hierarchical opposites switch places and in the play there is imagery of that happening. For example, exactly where we are in Act 3, Scene 2, Hermia speaks of Lysander would never knowingly, willingly, willingly just leave me. I'll believe as soon the whole earth may be bored, in other words, a whole board in it, and that the moon may through the center creep and so displease her brother's noontide with the Antipodes, that the moon will bore through the center of the earth and go down to the Antipodes and usurp the place of the sun, her brother's noontide. It, and basically the context of this speech is an angry, upset speech to Demetrius. She cannot find Lysander and she is really afraid that Demetrius has murdered him out of rivalry and she's getting increasingly angry with him. But that image of the moon and the sun, the opposites, who are supposed to be at the antipodes, switch places. I'll just assume that the moon switches places with its opposite, the sun. But things are switching in this play constantly, not just people in love with other people, but all sorts of other things as well. That is night rule, the rule of chaos. And Puck loves it. There are figures of order like Theseus, but there are figures of disorder like Puck. He is a trickster figure, as a mythologist would say. And trickster figures are mischievous. They're not evil, but they are mischievous and they create chaos wherever they go. But the thing is, chaos seems to be somehow necessary. Order by itself simply turns into tyranny or ossification. It needs to be shaken up, and here's Puck to do it. Puck says, in this long second scene of the third act, we are in the, actually the physical middle of the text of the play. Famous line, Puck says, oh, this is going to be good. Shall we their fond pageant see? Lord, what fools these mortals be. Famous line. And goes on to add, I'm going to love it. And those things do best please me. 
that befall preposterously. I love absurdity. Oh, it will all come out to order again at the end, but in the meantime, we have night rule, and it moves preposterously. And it does indeed continue to move, because at this point, the lovers began to confront one another and switch partners, at least in terms of their feelings. Again, we have opposites, but the last point we have, time to make this week before we take up and see the resolution of it beginning, at least next week, is that even again when it seems chaos, there is a hidden order. The lovers out here, it's hard even to keep track of it. When I teach the play, I always worry about confusing myself, let alone the students. And yet, when you stand back from it, the lovers are out here changing partners in an orderly way, as if it were a dance. They begin before the play starts, each loving his own woman. Lysander loves Hermia, Demetrius had loved Helena, but again before the play starts, switches and decides he wants Hermia. So that is the first switch from each man loving his own proper partner to both of them now want Hermia in the opening scene in front of Theseus, both contending for the one woman. Then out in the woods, each of them switches due to the love juice. Lysander becomes fixated through the love juice on Helena Demetrius, because he's an idiot, uh, has already decided he wants Hermia, so now they've totally switched to the opposite woman. Then in the scene coming up for next week, each of them, for a moment at any rate, is in love with Helena, and they've totally switched. Each loved Hermia in the opening, now both of them are in love with Helena, and Hermia is just standing there saying, what? And then finally, at the end of the play, they will revert and each love his own woman properly again. But it seems chaotic, and yet there's an order to it. We will follow up on this and have lots more fun next week.